Chapter 12 of The Wild Northland by William Francis Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12 The Clearwater, a river small in a land where rivers are often a mile in width, meanders between its lofty wooded hills, or rather one should say, meanders in the deep valley which it has worn for itself through countless ages. Ever since the beginning of the fur trade, it has been the sole route followed into the north. More practicable routes undoubtedly exist, but hitherto the long portage, a ridge dividing the waters of the chain of lakes and rivers we have lately passed from those streams which seek the Arctic Ocean, and the Clearwater River have formed as if it were the gateway to the north. This long portage, under the various names of La Loque and Methy, is not a bad position from whence to take a bird's-eye view of the great north. Once upon a time, how long ago one is afraid to say, a great sea rolled over what is now the central continent. From the Gulf of Mexico to the Arctic Ocean, from the Gulf of St. Lawrence to the base of the Rocky Mountains, this ocean has left its trace. It had its shores, and today these shores still show the trace where the restless waves threw their surge upon the earlier earth. To the eye of the geologist, the seashell, high cast up on some mountain ridge, tells its story of the sea as plainly as the tropic seashell held to the dreamer's ear whispers its low melody of sounding billow. To the east of this ocean, the old earth reared its iron head in those grim masses which we name Laurentian, and which, as though conscious of their hoary age, seemed to laugh at the labor of the newcomer, man. The waters went down, more the earth went up, it matters little which, and the river systems of the continent worked their ways into Mother Ocean, the Mississippi south, the St. Lawrence east, the Mackenzie north. But the old Laurentians still remained, and today, grim, filled with wild lakes, pine-clad, rugged, almost impassable, it lies spread in a savage sleep from Labrador to the Arctic Ocean. At the Methy Portage, we are on the western boundary of this Laurentian rock. From here it runs southeast into Canada, north to the frozen ocean. It is of the regions lying between this primary formation and the Rocky Mountains, the region once an ocean, of which we would speak. I have said in an earlier chapter that the continent of British America, from the United States boundary, slopes to the northeast, the eastern slope terminates at this portage la Loque, and henceforth the only slope is to the north. From here to the frozen sea, 1,000 miles as the wild swan flies, is one long and gradual descent. Three rivers carry the waters of this slope into the Arctic Ocean, the great Fish River of Sir George Back, at the estuary of which the last of Franklin's gallant crew lay down to die, the Copper Mine of Samuel Hearn, and the Mackenzie, which tells its discoverer's name. The first two flow through the barren grounds. The last drains by numerous tributaries 1,700 miles of the Rocky Mountains upon both sides of that snow-capped range. All its principal feeders rise beyond the mountains, cutting through the range at right angles through tremendous valleys, the sides of which overhang the gloomy waters. The Liard, the Peel, the Peace Rivers all have their sources to the west of the Rocky Mountains. 
Even the parent rill of the great Athabasca is on the Pacific side also. Nor is this mountain, thus curiously rent in twain by large rivers, a mere ridge or lofty tableland. But, huge and vast, capped by eternal snow, it lifts its peaks full 15,000 feet above the sea level. Many large lakes lie spread over this ancient sea bottom. Lake Athabasca, Great Slave, and Great Bear Lake continue across the continent the Great Lacustrine Line, which, with Winnipeg, Superior, Huron, and Ontario, forms an aggregate of water surface half as large as Europe. Of other lakes, the country is simply a vast network, beyond all attempts at name or number. Of every size, from a hundred yards to a hundred miles in length, they lie midst prairie or midst forests, lonely and silent, scarce known even to the wild man's ken. And now, having thus imperfectly tried to bring to the reader's mind a vision of this vast north, let us descend from the height of land into the deep valley of the Clearwater, and, like it, hurry onward to the Athabasca. Descending the many curving Clearwater for one day, we reached, on the last day of February, its junction with the Athabasca, a spot known as the Forks of the Athabasca. The aspect of the country had undergone a complete change. The dwarf and ragged forest had given place to lofty trees, and the white spruce from a trunk of eight feet in circumference lifted its head fully 150 feet above the ground. Nor was it the only aspect of the trees that might have induced one to imagine himself in the land of plenty. In the small fort at the Forks, luxuries unseen during many a day met the eye. Choice vegetables, the produce of the garden, moose venison, and better than all, the tender steak of the wood buffalo, an animal now growing rare in the north. There was salmon, too, and pears and peaches, but these latter luxuries, I need hardly say, were not home produce. They came from the opposite extremes of Quebec and California. Here then, in the midst of the wilderness, was a veritable Eden. Here was a place to cry, halt, to build a hut, and pass the remainder of one's life. No more dog-driving, no more snowshoes, no smoky camp, no aching feet, no call in midnight, nothing but endless wood-buffalo steaks, fried onions, moose-moofle, parsnips, fresh butter, rest and sleep. Alas, it might not be. Nine hundred miles yet lay between me and the Rocky Mountains. Nine hundred miles had still to be traveled, ere the snow had left bare the brown banks of the Peace River. And now our course led straight to the north, down the broad bed of the Athabasca, a river high-shored and many-islanded with long reaches, leagues in length, and lower banks thickly wooded with large forest trees. From bank to bank, fully 600 yards of snow lay spread over the rough, frozen surface, and at times, where the prairie plateau approached the river's edge, black bitumen oozed out of the clayey bank, and the scent of tar was strong upon the frosty air. On Sunday, the 2nd of March, we remained for a day in a wood of large pines and poplars. Dogs and men enjoyed that day's rest. Many were footsore, some were sick, all were tired. The beel is a black man, and much more hairy. He carries archers in his hand. With these he shoots you when he meets you. 
He throws your body into a ditch. By this you will know the beel. Such, word for word, was the written reply of a young Hindu at an examination of candidates for a government office in Bombay a few years ago. The examiners had asked for a description of the hill tribe known as Beals, and this was the answer. It is not on record what number of marks the youthful Brahmin received for the information thus lucidly conveyed, or whether the examiners were desirous of making further acquaintance with the Beal upon the terms indicated in the concluding sentence, but for some reason or other the first sight of a veritable Chippewayan Indian brought to my mind the foregoing outline of the Beal, and I found myself insensibly repeating, The Chippewayan is a red man and much more hairy. There I stopped, for he did not carry archers in his hand, nor proceed in the somewhat abrupt and discourteous manner which characterized the conduct of the Beal. And here, perhaps, it will be necessary to say a few words about the wild man who dwells in this northern land. A great deal has been said and written about the wild man of America. The white man, during many years, has lectured upon him, written learned essays upon him, phrenologically proved him this, chronologically demonstrated him that, ethnologically asserted him to be the other. I am not sure that the conchologists even have not thrown a shell at him, and most clearly shown that he was a conglomerate of this, that, and t'other all combined. They began to dissect him very early. One Hugh Grotius had much to say about him a long time ago. Another Jean Delute also descanted upon him, and, so far back as the year of grace 1650, one Thorogood, what a glimpse the date gives of the name and the name of the date, composed a godly treatise entitled Jews in America, or a Probability that Americans are of that race. Perhaps if Master Thorogood was in the flesh today, he might, arguing from certain little dealings and boundary cases, consequential claims, and so forth, prove incontestably that modern American statesmen were of that race, too. But to proceed, this question of the red man's origin has not yet been solved. The doctors are still disputing about him. One professor has gotten hold of a skull delved from the presumed site of ancient Atazlan, and by the most careful measurements of the said skull, has proceeded to show that, because one skull measures in circumference the hundredth and seventy-seventh decimal of an inch more than it ought, it must of necessity be the blackamoor type of headpiece. Another equally learned professor, possessed of another equally curious skull, of course on a shelf, not on the shoulders, has unfortunately come to the conclusions directly opposite, and is incontestably proven from careful occipital measurements that the type is Mongolian. Well, thus the doctors differ as to what he is, or who he is, or whence he came, the farce of theory changes to the stern tragedy of fact, and over the broad prairie and upon the cloud-capped mountains and northwards in the gloomy pine forest, the red man withers and dies out before our gaze. Soon they will have nothing but the skulls to lecture on. From the long portage which we have but lately crossed, to the barren shores where dwell the Eskimo of the coasts, a family of cognate tribes inhabit the continent. 
From east to west, the limits of this race are even more extensive. They are found at Churchill on Hudson's Bay and at Fort Simpson on the rugged coast of New Caledonia. But, stranger still, far down in Arizona and Mexico, even as far south as Nicaragua, the guttural language of the Chippewayan race is still heard, and the wild Navajo and fierce Apache horsemen of the Mexican plains are kindred races with the distant fur hunters of the north. Of all the many ramifications of Indian race, this is, perhaps, the most extraordinary. Through what vicissitudes of war and time an offshoot from the shores of Athabasca wandered down into Mexico, while a hundred fierce foreign warlike tribes occupied the immense intervening distance, is more than human conjecture can determine. To the east of the Rocky Mountains, these races call themselves Tina, a name which signifies people, with that sublimity of ignorance which makes most savage people imagine themselves the sole proprietors of the earth. Many subdivisions exist among them. These are the Copper Indians and the Dog Ribs of the Barren Grounds, the Lucino or Cutchins, a fierce tribe on the Upper Yukon, the Yellow Knives, Hares, Nihannis, Sikonis, and Dalas of the Mountains and the Mackenzie River, the Slaves of the Great Slave Lake, the Chippewayans of Lake Athabasca and Portage La Loche, the Beavers of the Peace River. West of the Rocky Mountains, the Carriers, still a branch of the Chippewayan stock, intermingle with the numerous Atna races of the coast. On the North Saskatchewan, a small wild tribe called the Circes also springs from this great family, and, as we have already said, nearly 3,000 miles far down in the tropic plains of old Mexico, the harsh, stuttering accent grates upon the ear. Spread over such a vast extent of country, it may be supposed that they vary much in physiognomy. Bravery in men and beauty in women are said to go hand in hand. Of the courage of the Chippewayan men, I shall say nothing. Of the beauty of the women, I shall say something. To assert that they are very plain would not be true. They are undeniably ugly. Some of the young ones are very fat. All of the old ones are very thin. Many of the faces are pear-shaped, narrow foreheads, wide cheeks, small, deep-set, fat eyes. The type is said to be Mongolian, and if so, Mongolians should change their type as soon as possible. Several of the men wear sickly-looking mustaches and short, pointed chin tufts. The hair is coarse and matted. It's worn long. The children look like rolls of fat half-melted on the outside. Their general employment seems to be eating moose meat when they are not engaged in deriving nourishment from the maternal bosom. This last occupation is protracted to an advanced age of childhood, a circumstance which probably arises from the fact that the newborn infant receives no nourishment from its mother for four days after its birth in order that it shall, in afterlife, be able to stand the pangs of hunger. But the infant mind is no doubt conscious itself of being robbed of its just rights, and endeavors to make up for lost time by this postponement of the age of weaning. This description does not hold good of the beaver Indians of the Peace River. Many of them, men and women, are good-looking enough, but more of them anon. All these tribes are excellent hunters. 
the moose in the south and wooded country, the reindeer in the barren lands, ducks and geese in vast numbers during the summer, and, generally speaking, inexhaustible fish in the lakes, yield them their means of living. At times, one prodigious feast, again a period of starvation. For a time living on moose nose or buffalo tongue or the daintiest titbit of lake and forest, and then glad to get a scrap of dry meat or a putrid fish to satisfy the cravings of their hunger. While the meat lasts, life is a long dinner. The child just able to crawl is seen with one hand holding the end of a piece of meat, the other end of which is held between the teeth, while the right hand wields a knife a foot in length with which it saws steadily between lips and fingers until the mouthful is detached. How the nose escapes amputation is a mystery I have never heard explained. A few tents of Chippewayans were pitched along the shores of the Athabasca River when we descended that stream. They had long been expecting the return of my companion, to whose arrival they looked as a means of supplying them with percussion gun caps, the article having been almost exhausted among them. Knowing the hours at which he was wont to travel, they had marked their camping places on the wooded shore by planting a line of branches in the snow across the river from one side to the other. Thus, even at night, it would have been impossible to pass their tents without noticing the line of marks. The tents inside or out always presented the same spectacle. Battered-looking dogs of all ages surrounded the dwelling place. In the trees or on a stage, meat, snowshoes, and dog sleds lay safe from canine ravage. Inside, some ten or twelve people congregated around a bright fire burning in the center. The lodge was usually large, requiring a dozen moose skins in its construction. Quantities of moose or buffalo meat cut into slices hung to dry in the upper smoke. The inevitable puppy dog playing with a stick, the fat, greasy child pinching the puppy dog, drinking on all fours out of a tin pan or sawing away at a bit of meat. And the women, old or young, cooking or nursing with a naivete which Rubens would have delighted in. All of these made up a Chippewayan interior, such as it appeared whenever we halted in our march. And, leaving our dogs upon the river, we went up into the tree-covered shore to where the tents stood pitched. Anxious to learn the amount of game destroyed by a good hunter in a season, I caused one of the men to ask Crippo what he had killed. Crippo counted for a time on his fingers, and then informed us that since the snow fell, he had killed ten wood buffalo and twenty-five moose. In other words, about 17,000 pounds of meat during four months. But of this, a large quantity went to the Hudson's Bay Fort at the Forks of the Athabasca. The night of the 4th of March found us camped in a high wood at a point where a cache of provisions had been made for ourselves and for our dogs. More than a fortnight earlier, these provisions had been sent from Fort Chippewayan on Lake Athabasca and had been deposited in the cache to await my companion's arrival. A bag of fish for the dogs, a small packet of letters, and a bag of good things for the master swung from a large tripod close to the shore. Some of these things were very necessary, all were welcome, and after a choice supper we turned in for the night. At four o'clock next morning we were off. 
My friend led the march, and the day was to be a long one. For four hours we held on, and by an hour after sunrise we had reached a hut where dwelt a Chippewayan named Echo. The house was deserted, and if anybody had felt inclined to ask where had Echo gone to, Echo was not there to answer where. Nobody, however, felt disposed to ask the question, but in lieu thereof, dinner was being hastily got ready in Echo's abandoned fireplace. Dinner? Yes, our first dinner took place usually between 7 and 8 o'clock a.m., nor were appetites ever wanting at that hour either. Various mishaps, a broken snowshoe and broken-down dog, had retarded my progress on this morning, and by the time the leading train had reached Echo's, I was far behind. One of my dogs had totally given out, not Sir Fola, but the Il Alacrasa dog, Major. Poor brute, he had suddenly lain down and refused to move. He was a willing, good hauler, generally barking vociferously whenever any impediment in front detained the trains. I saw at once it was useless to coerce him after his first breakdown, so there was nothing for it but to take him from the harness and hurry on with the other three dogs as best I could. Of the old train, which had shared my fortunes ever since that now distant day in the storm on the Red River steamboat, yet two remained to me. Pony had succumbed at the Riviere La Loque and had been left behind at that station to revel in an abundance of whitefish. The last sight I got of him was suggestive of his character. He was careering wildly across the river with a huge stolen whitefish in his mouth, pursued by two men and half a dozen dogs, vainly attempting to recapture the purloined property. Another dog named Sansparil had taken his place, and thus far we had marched on into the bowels of the land without impediment. From the day after my departure from Ile a la Crosse, I had regularly used snowshoes, and now I seldom sought the respite of the sled, but trudged along behind the dogs. I well knew that it was only by sparing my dogs thus that I could hope to carry them the immense distance I proposed to travel. And I was also aware that a time might come when, in the many vicissitudes of snow travel, I would be unable to walk and have to depend altogether on my train for means of movement. So, as day by day the snowshoes became easier, I had tramped along until now, on this 5th of March, I could look back at nigh 300 miles of steady walking. Our meal at Echo's over, we set out again. Another four hours passed without a halt, and another 16 or 17 miles lay behind us. Then came the second dinner, cakes, tea, and sweet pemmican, and away we went once more upon the river. The day was cold but fine, the dogs trotted well, and the pace was faster than before. Two Indians had started ahead to hurry on to a spot, indicated by my companion, where they were to make ready the camp and await our arrival. Night fell and found us still upon the river. A bright moon silvered the snow. We pushed along, but the dogs were now tired, all, save my train, which having only blankets, guns, and a few articles to carry, still went as gamely as ever. At sundown, our baggage sleds were far to the rear. My companion, driving a well-loaded sled, led the way while I kept close behind him. 
For four hours after dark, we held steadily on. The night was still, but very cold. The moon showed us the track. The dogs and men seemed to go forward from the mere impulse of progression. I had been tired hours before and had got over it. Not half-tired, but regularly weary. And yet, somehow or other, the feeling of weariness had passed away, and one stepped forward upon the snowshoe by a mechanical effort that seemed destitute of sense or feeling. At last we left the river and ascended a steep bank to the left, passing into the shadow of gigantic pines. Between their giant trunks the moonlight slanted, and the snow, piled high on forest wreck, glowed lustrous in the fretted light. A couple of miles more brought us suddenly to the welcome glare of firelight, and at ten o'clock at night we reached the blazing camp. Eighteen hours earlier we had started for the day's march, and only during two hours had we halted on the road. We had, in fact, marched steadily during sixteen hours, twelve of which had been at rapid pace. The distance run that day is unmeasured and is likely to remain so for many a day, but at the most moderate estimate it would not have been less than fifty-six miles. It was the longest day's march I ever made, and I had cause long to remember it, for on arising at daybreak next morning, I was stiff with mal de raquette. In the north, mal de raquette or no mal de raquette, one must march. Sick or sore or blistered, the traveler must frequently still push on. Where all is wilderness, progression is frequently means of preservation and delay is tantamount to death. In our case, however, no such necessity existed, but as we were only some 25 miles distant from the great central distributing point of the northern fur trade, it was advisable to reach it without delay. Once again we set out. Debouching from the forest, we entered a large marsh. Soon a lake with low-lying shores spread before us. Another marsh, another frozen river, and, at last, a vast lake opened out on our gaze. Islands, rocky and clothed with pine trees, rose from the snowy surface. To the east, nothing but a vast expanse of ice-covered sea with a blue, cold skyline. To the north, the shore of rocks and hills, wind-swept and part-covered with dwarf firs. And on the rising shore, the clustered buildings of a large fort, with a red flag flying above them in the cold north blast. The lake was Athabasca, the clustered buildings Fort Chippewayan, and in the flag, well, we all know it, but it is only when the wanderer's eye meets it in some lone spot like this that he turns to it as the emblem of a home which distance has shrined deeper in his heart. End of chapter 12